Well, in introduction to this text, let us be reminded that this book, The Song of Songs, is an allegory, or we could say a parable. It's poetry about the most excellent relationship that can be had, the relationship of a Christian with God himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this book is a dialogue. It's God speaking to the Christian or to the Christian church and the church responding back to the groom. What I think is also helpful to recognize is the Song of Songs is placed after the book of Ecclesiastes. And so I believe that the book of Ecclesiastes, like apparently many of the Puritans did, was actually a confession of Solomon, much like his father's confessions in Psalm 32, 51, and 130, that Solomon is acknowledging that he tried everything. He was just like Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. He couldn't get any satisfaction. And eventually he finds it in the Lord God himself. And so I believe the Song of Songs is placed after that repentance because now he's going to, in poetry, display this beautiful relationship that he's entered into uh, in his latter days. I think it's also important for us to remember that this applies to the individual believer as well as to the universal church. And we even have a passage, a verse, that actually makes that explicitly clear. Just look at 1-4. Here the bride says, draw me, we will run. Draw me, singular, we, plural, will run. So throughout this book, we need to think about the fact that this is speaking to us personally, as an individual believer, but also to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's also helpful to be reminded that though we have the groom and the bride speaking back and forth, and Christ is obviously represented by the groom, yet nonetheless... In verse 11 of chapter 1, we have the groom, Christ speaking, we will make the borders of gold with studs of silver. I believe this is clearly a reference to the Trinity. All three persons of the Godhead are engaged in the salvation of the believer individually as well as the salvation and deliverance of the people of God corporately. So having said that, let me remind you as well that Song of Songs is Hebrew poetry. And what's true about Hebrew poetry is oftentimes it's not chronological. So you might think this story is about um, you know, meeting and then a courtship and then a marriage. Well, no, in fact, it jumps back between pursuing and engaging and marriage. It jumps all over the chronology. So we have to recognize that. You also have to recognize that the bride has prayed in verse one, uh, 7 and 8 of chapter 1 that she would have a close relationship with her group. He answers that prayer. And then we find in chapter 3, that she departs from him. We see her going after him. She asks 
the overseers, the watchmen. And here, the watchmen can't bring her Christ like the priest in Rome would claim to hand you the body of Christ. But it appears that they do direct her there. And then she finds him. And then she speaks of how he's coming to her in all his majesty and all his glory at the end of chapter 3. And then here in chapter 4, we have now the groom speaking. He's going to speak to her of her beauty in verses 1 through 7. Then he's going to call her into a deeper fellowship or communion in verses 8 and following. So this morning we're going to look at his portrayal, his picture of us, his people. And what we have to understand, children, is if you remember the book of Kings and Chronicles, we're told that Solomon was a naturalist. He enjoyed the outside just like his father David did. He spent a lot of time observing nature, observing animals. And so he is going to describe the beauty of a church as a beautiful Jewish woman of the time in the Jewish garb of the time using pictures from the natural world that he was very familiar with. And so he's going to refer to mountains. He's going to refer to doves. He's going to refer to black goats, beautiful, shiny black goats. He's going to refer to white sheep who have just been shorn but still have enough of the wool on that they're white and they're just washed. They haven't gotten the mud yet. He's going to talk about a thread of wool that's dyed in scarlet which was the most exquisite color of the time, the most expensive dye of the time. He's going to talk of pomegranates that he's seen. He's going to talk of rose or gazelles that he'd seen feeding amongst lilies. He's also going to talk about an armory, a tower of David, where all the shields of the mighty men were kept. He must have seen that. It's interesting that he uses all those to then describe this Jewish woman, this beautiful Jewish young woman, and he's describing the church through this parable. So let us see in this text, first in verses 1 through 5, the groom's reflection. Then in verse 6, we're going to see the groom's resolution. And in verse 7, we'll see the groom's re-reflection. And let us not forget who the groom is, children. The groom is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So first, his reflection. He speaks very favorably, doesn't he, of the bride. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. He repeats himself. He's not doing this to puff you or to puff us up. He's doing, a, doing this that he might encourage us and might attract others. You see, we don't have a very high view of the church today. But God has called us to walk around the towers, has he not in the end of Psalm 48, to walk around the palaces to appreciate the beauty of the church? We have to do it by the eye of faith, don't we? I believe, Lord, help my unbelief, because it looks very, very messy. But God is at work. He tells us in Ephesians through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3.10 that through the church, the manifold 
multifaceted wisdom of God is displayed, not only to the world, but even to the unseen world. Wow. Wow. And we're part of that. What? Beauty. He gives this general commendation, then he gives a specific commendation. Physical commendations referring to spiritual commendations. And he's going to give seven. Seven is a, is a in the scriptures clearly refers to a number of perfection. It's referred quite often to the seven spirits of God. And we understand that the Holy Spirit is not divided into seven parts. He's not seven persons or seven parts. But the picture of the seven spirits is that he's everywhere influencing everything. To me, I like to think this, this is a picture of the character of a Christian similar to the way the Beatitudes are a picture of the character of the Christian. In a different literary genre or style, right? But we're going to have seven characteristics of the character, not so much the actions of the Christian or the church, but our character, this character that God himself has made in us. First, he describes her eyes uh, in verse 1b. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. This word locks could also be translated veil, and that would certainly fit in that Eastern time period that a woman might remain veiled until her wedding day. It could be referring to her long hair that kind of comes down and maybe cuts her eyes off from wandering. This is clearly a picture of her affections, of her singleness of heart, Christ-like devotion to Christ. That's the picture. You know, in Matthew 6, 21 through 23, took me a while to ever figure that verse out, and I'm sure I haven't figured it out yet, but it's very interesting that Christ speaks of the one that has the single eye versus the one that has the evil eye. In other words, the evil eye is the one whose eyes are always wandering, whose affections are always drawn one place or another. Right? They're like children. They, can't, they don't enjoy one thing for very long, do they? And then they're on to something else. No, we're to be mature in Christ, right? We're to be not children any longer. Our eyes are to be fixed on the Lord. So he first refers to her eyes. You know, she's been speaking beautifully of him, right? God has done that work in us. And it's those that speak beautifully of Christ, that see Christ's beauty, that are themselves, have been beautified by the Savior. So he speaks first of her eyes. Then her hair in 1C. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appears from Mount Gilead. You see, her eyes are not like eagles' eyes. They're not like vultures' eyes looking to devour someone. They're dove's eyes. They're meek. They're focused upon him. And her hair is like a flock of goats. This is a picture likely of these black goats that would come, and they are black goats that basically feed in Mount Gilead. Very beautiful, black, shiny wool. And he's visioning them coming down and saying, your hair's like that. Like looking and seeing this flock of sheep coming down. 
What's hair referred to generally in Scripture? In 1 Corinthians 11, we're told that a woman's hair is a glory to her. We're told in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Peter 3 that in the New Testament times, women often adorned their hair significantly. And I believe many in our day have misinterpreted those passages to suggest that women can't have any adornment on. Um, but what Paul and Peter are doing is he's saying, don't make your primary adornment outward. It's inward. Peter says it's the meek and quiet spirit which gets demonstrated outwardly, but it's inward. It starts inward first. That's what Solomon is speaking of here under the inspiration. Her lifestyle, her adornment, we see that theme picked up by the Apostle Paul, particularly in the book of Titus, where Paul says that doctrine is going to accord, it's going to lead to godliness. It's the mother of godliness, and so true doctrine will promote godliness. It will produce a godly lifestyle. So he commends her first for her affection, then her adornment, then her teeth. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep, which are even shorn, which come up from the washing. Every one bears twins, and none is barren among them. She's got all her teeth. They're all very white and very straight. And she hasn't had braces. <laughs> What's he describing here? He's obviously saying, it's interesting too, they're even shorn. Have you ever seen sheep that have been shorn but kind of sloppily and they're like all patched work? These are evenly shorn. They're still beautiful. He said, that's what your teeth are like. I think this is a reference to her diet. Feeding upon the word of Christ. Feeding upon Christ. Not biting and devouring with those teeth, but gaining sustenance, spiritual nourishment. That's what is the beauty of a believer, one that feeds upon the words of her Lord. Then he refers to her lips. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of a pomegranate within thy locks. So first her lips, then her temples or her cheeks. Her lips. Notice her lips are scarlet. Can I be absolutely sure this is a reference to the blood of Christ? No. But I certainly think it's pretty interesting that it is. I kind of lean that way. Just like that scarlet thread that Rahab lets down the spies. There's something in that, but it is the fact that scarlet was a very precious dye and clothing that was red was viewed as very beautiful. And it's her lips. They're beautiful and they're healthy. I believe this is primarily a reference to prayer. Her speech to him is comely. It could refer to the, edifi the edifying and the evangelistic effort of a believer, but I'm, I think we're going to see that those are portrayed in the two breasts of this beautiful young woman. So I think here it's more likely in the context referring to prayer. 
Remember in 2.14, the groom has said this to her, O my dove, thou art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of thy stairs. Let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice and thy countenance is comely. Can you imagine that Christ actually tells us, I want, to, I want to be with you, I want to hear you. I really enjoy hearing you. I'd have to admit there are not many mornings that I wake up thinking of this verse. That the Lord is just, just dying to meet with me. He's just looking forward to meet with me. His child. And remember, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaketh. Our prayer life is not going to be better than our diet of God's word. Because we have to be able to frame our, word, our words to him by what's important to him. Where are we going to learn what's important to him? The way things really are. Not the way they appear on the surface. How are we going to get our priorities straight unless we're in the Word of God? Feeding upon it, meditating upon it, chewing the cud, bringing the things that we've learned back up into our thoughts like a cow brings back up the food that they've eaten and chews it more to get the most nourishment out of it. So her lips, I believe, refer to the prayers of the saint. We've seen her affection, her single-hearted devotion to the Savior, her adornment, her hair, her beauty in the world, in a meek and quiet spirit, the temperament, her disposition. Then we've seen her communion with the Lord. She's interested in hearing from him and feeding upon him. She's interested in speaking back to him. And then he speaks of her cheeks or her temples. Sometimes when this word is used in the Hebrew, it's pretty clearly referring to temples. Many other times in the context, it seems to be referring to the cheek. It seems to be this whole area between your lips and your ears that's being referred to. Now, I've seen pomegranates, and I have, a, I mean, on the surface, it's not real clear that I want my wife's cheeks to look like a pomegranate. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's not too attractive. I don't think it was too attractive to Solomon either, it's most likely, the commentators say, that when a pomegranate is opened up, that it has red and white spots within it. And the suggestion is, is that there's kind of like a blush, there's a redness to the cheeks, which signifies health. And quite often in Scripture, um, it refers to a contentment within a person that you could see outwardly expressed just in their facial expressions. You can tell when somebody's content, when somebody's anxious, or when somebody's discontent, can't you? We maybe couldn't write down exactly why we think that, what's, what's going on in somebody's face, but we have a sense, don't we, of that. And there are professionals that you know, have studied those things, right? It can oftentimes, most, more, more, more than not, be very accurate. So it's likely referring to contentment, but it also likely has a reference to humility. She blushes. Have you blushed yet? As I've been telling you about 
how beautiful Christ says you are? When you know that you sin daily in word, thought, and deed? The true Christian is going to be blushing at this kind of description. Any humble woman would likely be blushing even when her husband would speak of her beauty like this, right? We're called and we're told later in the book of Ezekiel, after we've just looked at 16, but in chapter 20 and then in 36, we're told that the Lord is going to respond and bring back the people from Babylon. And he's going to, by his spirit, give them a spirit of loathing for their sin. Now, that's not a word we hear very often. But loathing is an extremely intense hatred for our sin. That will bring humility upon us. Then he goes to the neck. She's not stiff-necked, but she has jewelry about her neck. And what does the neck connect, children? It connects the head to the body. And don't we have the image significantly in Scripture of Christ being the head and thus the church being the body? And so faith is that which unites the body to the head. I believe Solomon here under inspiration is referring to the the grace of faith. In Ephesians 6.16 we're told that we're to take up the shield of faith. Faith oftentimes needs to be defensive, doesn't it? It needs to go to battle. This is a courageous faith. This is a faith that leads to courage. This is a faith that maintains the single eye upon the fear of God and doesn't waver and begin to fear men, but is prepared to speak the truth and live the truth regardless of the consequences. This is likely a reference to an armory in the city of Jerusalem. This speaks something about self-defense, doesn't it? Corporate self-defense rather than personal self-defense. The legitimacy of it. It's interesting, I I saw this week in Nehemiah 3.19, when the people of God return from Babylon and begin to rebuild the city, we're told of the armory there where all the shields were kept. It wasn't as glorious as the armory that Solomon's speaking of, But there was this armory. Just think about Hebrews 11 and what some people call the hall of faith, where the apostle Paul in the book of Hebrews is prepared to speak of the beauty of the grace of faith and how it was demonstrated in so many of believers' lives through the Old Testament period. And you see in all those situations the courage that they displayed principled courage. It wasn't always there, was it? But they were valiant for the truth. And so that is what the Lord is 
very attracted to him. He's attracted, into, he's attracted to us for all the graces that he's given us. He's given us all this. He's beautified us. And then he loves our beauty. We didn't make any of our beauty for ourselves. And yet he loves us for his work. He lastly, seventhly, speaks of her breasts in verse 5. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Now, we don't use the word rose very much. It's probably referring to gazelles. Most of the children have probably heard of a gazelle. They're feeding amongst the lilies. We've seen in chapter 2, 16, that feeding among the lilies means fellowshipping with God's people in Christ's presence. He is the lily of the valley, and yet we are called lilies. We're white, we're pure. And so one that feeds amongst the lilies is one that is faithful to being amongst the people of God on the Lord's Day where his ordinances are practiced. James Durham, a Scottish commentator, said this. He said, time taken and pains bestowed for the edification of others and their instruction in the excellency of Christ is acceptable to him and proves often useful for attaining sensible fellowship with him. In other words, when we are bold enough to speak the word of God to believers and unbelievers alike, to build them up or to see them brought to Christ, We are edified. We are edified. I can't think of how many times after teaching Christian education, preaching, even celebrating the Lord's Supper sometimes, having a Christian fellowship uh, in Charlotte, and then having to go to the assisted living home where it was about 10 degrees hotter than here, and it didn't smell very pretty because they weren't keeping up with changing a lot of the people's diapers. Some of you remember that. Right? And you could think of all kinds of excuses why you didn't want to go. And yet, when you went, you were built up and encouraged. Right? And you left having a closer fellowship with Christ. And I think we all have experienced things like that, haven't we? Christ is never more with his church than when they are fulfilling the Great Commission. He's promised to be amongst his people as they seek to preach the gospel. As the church corporate, through unique ambassadors of Christ, but as all believers seek by their lives and their lips to reflect the Lord Jesus Christ, as they seek to um, use their time wisely, to redeem their time, and to speak with seasoned with grace or speak words that are seasoned with salt. So here, breasts are obviously a picture of beauty. We see that in Ezekiel 16, 7 that we read. But for use, for edification and for evangelization. So we've seen Christ's reflection of the church in verses 1 through 5. Now in verse 6, we see the groom's resolution. Until the daybreak... And the shadows flee away, I will get me 
to the hill of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Now this is important. Do you see what the Lord Jesus is saying? He's saying, I am resolved to meet with you in the mountain, reference to the church, a mountain of myrrh and of frankincense, two of the things that were used in the sacrificial system, one being bitter and one being sweet, and I'm prepared and resolved to meet with you there until the daybreak, until the shadows flee away. In other words, we live in a period of shadows compared to the light that we're going to see at Christ's return. I'm sure you've heard of the already and the not yet. Here, Christ is saying, until the not yet, I'm going to keep being here in the already. What a beautiful picture that is. He's resolved to be amongst us as his people until he's with us in a greater measure at his return. And then he re-reflects. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot with thee. He can't stop thinking about us. Thou art all fair, positive. My love, a reference to his covenant commitment to us. Remember, this is a a bride here in Song of Songs that departs a couple times. She starts walking away from him. Her affections aren't so warm towards him, and yet his affection towards her doesn't change. And we've all experienced that, haven't we? And then negatively, there is no spot in thee. Now, what does that mean? We don't believe in total perfection on this life. But what it does mean is it means that the guilt of sin has been paid and we're justified. It means the power of sin is being dealt with because he's begun a good work in us and he'll continue it to the day of Christ Jesus. It means that the presence of sin will be eradicated at our death. We will not carry sin with us to heaven. And then the consequences of sin will be eradicated at Christ's return when our body and our souls are reunited. This is sure and firm. And so in the mind of God and the design of God, he could say we are perfect because he's perfecting us. His design for us will come to completion. He'll never have to go to plan B or plan C. He never has and he never will.